You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 today. Um, As we begin kind of a a sub-series in this larger series that we've been spending the last couple months within. Uh, If you've been here before, you know that we've been talking about uh, gospel foundations. Um, That is how the the, the beliefs, the priorities, and the practices of our church uh, that you'll encounter as you participate in our Sunday services uh, as you meet different people in our church, how all of those things are rooted in a foundation of Christ crucified. They are rooted in the gospel as, as entailments, as implications of what we believe about what Christ has done to save us. And today, we're going to kind of transition to this mini topic within this broader series of marriage. We're going to be talking about marriage today and over the next several Sundays. Exactly how many, I'm not sure, uh, because uh, even as I've been studying, I realized I need to spend a little bit more time on a chapter in Scripture that I wasn't planning to. So we want to keep this process, we want to keep our plans fluid and open to the Lord. Now, you may think uh, at first glance that it not it a little strange to address a topic like marriage? within a a broad series on gospel foundations. Um, That may be your first impression, but when you really think about it, there really is nothing more important for us to address in a series like this than marriage. And that is because healthy churches are made up of healthy families. And healthy families are made up of healthy marriages. Uh, Churches aren't just about families. We have single people, and they are an essential part of who we are and what we do as a church. But since the the beginning of the early church, since the times of the New Testament, the church has always been primarily made up of families. And so if we are to have a healthy church, we we, we need to have healthy families. And if we are to have healthy families, we need to have healthy marriages. Your family is not going to be healthy if the marriage is not healthy. You could have the best relationship with your kids and yet raise them in an unhealthy family environment. And that is because it is the love between the husband and his wife that sets the culture of the entire household. Uh, Nothing compares. It is is the love between husband and wife that sets the culture of the entire household. If if mom and dad love one another, then the family will be strong. The family will be united. But if mom and dad do not love one another, then the family will be weak and the family will be divided. And so the question is, what, what is the key to abiding intimate, personal, faithful love between a husband and his wife? Well, the answer, as you may have guessed, and if you know where, where I'm coming from when it comes to looking at the world and life, the answer is the gospel. 
the, the, the gospel is the heart of marriage. Marriage is shaped by the gospel and as it is empowered by the gospel so that it can put the gospel on display. Every single healthy marriage is like a living, breathing picture of the gospel reality that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He died for his bride, the church, out of love so that the church could respond in love to his love with love and submission. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be unpacking what it means to say that the gospel is at the heart of marriage. And in order to do that, we must begin in the beginning. We must begin in the book of Genesis. An examination of marriage must begin in the book of Genesis and to the origins of mankind. Uh, the, the 19th and early 20th century Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, he wrote that the history of the human race begins with a wedding. It begins with a wedding. I wonder, have you ever thought of the Bible like that? We know, uh, many of us know that Genesis 1 begins with an account of the creation of the world, of the heavens and the earth and the universe as we know it. God speaks it into existence. But when you flip the page to chapter 2, already what we find in the creation of humanity is the first wedding recorded in human history. The Bible tells us that we were made for love. We were made to love and we were made to be loved, both in our relationship with God and in our relationship with one another. Love, you could say, is the golden thread that runs throughout the entirety of the scriptures. It informs the beginning of the story, it informs the end of the story, and it informs everything in between. And while marriage is not the only place in which we can experience and encounter love, it is one of the most powerful. In his book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel, Ray Ortland writes, the biblical love story begins on a grand scale. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 verse 1. The story ends on an even grander scale. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, Genesis 21 verse 1. The first cosmos was created as the home of a young couple named Adam and Eve. The new cosmos will be created as the eternal home of the son and his bride. It is not as though marriage is just one theme among others in the Bible. Instead, marriage is the wraparound concept for the entire Bible. What, what a beautiful insight that Ray Ortland has served us well with. That marriage is not just one concept in the Bible. It is the wraparound concept around the entirety of the scriptures. And so if we are to understand the heart of God, if we are to understand the true depth of the gospel, we must understand what the Bible teaches about marriage. You could say, you could say it like this. The more we understand marriage, the more we will understand the gospel. And the more we understand the gospel, the more we will understand marriage. And so today, as we begin looking at Genesis chapter 2, let us begin this journey of encountering what God has revealed about this sacred 
and precious institution. The title of this sermon is The Beauty and Purpose of Marriage. The Beauty and Purpose of Marriage. We're going to break up our text today into three sections. First, the gardener. Second, the helper. And third, the wedding. The gardener, the helper, and the wedding. Let's look at our first point today. As you know, as I've already mentioned, God creates all things in Genesis 1. Six days with the seventh day to rest. He, he speaks it into existence by the power of his word. But, but here in chapter 2, verse 5, we see that most of the earth remains empty and barren. It was a time when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Life exists. All of life uh, has been created uh, by God himself, but it has not yet multiplied and filled the earth um, the way that God has intended it to. You could say that life exists in an untamed and wild fashion. There are two reasons for this. Again, in verse five, first, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land Uh, Because as verse 6 tells us, the land was still being watered by a mist from below rather than from water from above. And so the the irrigation of the earth was limited at this time. God had not yet sent the rains to uh, water the earth and bring about an abundance of life. But the second reason, also in verse 5, is that there was no man to work the ground. In other words, God did not create the world in such a way that every corner of the earth uh, was already filled with life. That's not how he created it. He didn't didn't create it as a finished product. He created it, you could say, like a blank canvas that was to be filled by the crown of his creation, by mankind. God's plan was to have mankind work the ground so that through his work, the earth would be filled with abundant and diverse life. And so God gets to work. Verse seven says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Man was formed from the dust of the earth and from the breath of heaven. Heaven and earth come together to create this absolutely unique creature. God makes him out of the earth because he belongs to the earth, but God breathes the breath of life into him to give him life because he ultimately belongs to heaven. Out of all of God's creation, mankind stands unique as those who were made in God's image. They were made to be like God, they were made to represent God, and they were made to serve God as faithful stewards of God's beautiful creation. And so the Lord immediately puts the first man to work, but not before he gives this man a head start. Verses eight to nine say, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So as the Lord prepares to deploy this man named Adam, 
um, th- this, this crown of, of his creation, as he prepares to deploy him into the world to fill the earth with life, he does not send him to an empty, barren patch of desert and, and command him to start digging. No, he, he, he plants him in paradise. He, he gives him a head start as he gives him trees that are, that are beautiful to look at and that bear fruit that is good to eat. It, it, is, it is a place that we can only imagine uh, with, with the greatest of our creative powers. And in the midst of that garden, God plants the greatest tree of all, the tree of life. That's in verse 9. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. This was the original Holy Grail. You, you eat the fruit of this tree and you will never die. And the amazing thing about this is that, is that it was there for the man to eat. This tree and its fruit was part of the, the gift that God had given to Adam to enjoy because man was never intended to die. We were intended to live forever in fellowship with God and with his creation. The only tree that Adam was not permitted to eat of was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there are many questions about what this tree meant and why God put it there. But at the essence of it, you could say, say this. The reason why the Lord put the tree there and commanded him to not eat of it is because he was always meant to look to God as the source of his moral authority and not to himself. The the tree existed there as a constant reminder that God is God and man is not. And so we are to look to God as the source of all that is good and what is beautiful and what what is desirable, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy and not to ourselves. That authority rests in God and not in man. Now verses 10 to 14 tell us that Adam had everything that he needed to not only start working in Eden, to, but to make Eden a more beautiful place. He had water, this, this wonderful stream of water that flows out into four major, major arteries in uh, present-day Middle East. And he had resources. He had gold and the delium and the onyx stone. He had everything that he needed to, to make the garden an even more beautiful place. And so with everything prepared, verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. My friends, this, this is the beginning of human history. We, we began as gardeners, gardeners tending to God's garden. It, it may sound menial, but it wasn't because God is the one who gave us this task. And if God gave us this task, then there is nothing more sacred. Now, let me be clear. That doesn't mean that we are all to quit our jobs and become farmers. Though I was joking with some earlier today that farmers perhaps are closer to God's heart than the rest of us. But anyways, uh, it, that, that, it does not mean that we are all to be gardeners and farmers. Theologians call this, this command that God has given to Adam the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. 
the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. And they show us that, that this mandate extends to any work that we can do that expresses love to God and love for neighbor. It may have started with gardening, but you can imagine as the world was filled with more and more human beings that the, the, the manner in which they would work would, would begin to diversify. And humanity would find creative ways to tend to creation. They would do things like invent equipment to make farming more efficient. They would uh, experiment with flavors as they make delicious cuisine. They would harness the world's resources to build beautiful homes and communities. They would create instruments and write songs and perform them in choirs and ensembles. There would have been so much for us to do. So much for us to explore and to discover and to enjoy all for the glory of God. And then sin entered the world. And sin changed everything. Sin made it necessary to open up a whole new host of vocations for humanity to pursue. Sin made it necessary for us to have governments in order to rule over disorder. Sin made it necessary for us to have courts and lawyers because there is the presence of injustice in the world. Sin made it necessary for us to have police to protect us. And sin made it necessary for us to have independent commissions to protect us from the police. So much of our work today has become necessary because of the fall, because of the presence of sin in our world Healthcare workers, insurance brokers, even pastors are only necessary because of the existence of sin. Sin has taken the pure and unblemished goodness of life and broken it down. And now it is by our work that we try to prop it up. And standing over and above all that work, of course, is the hardest work of all. The the work of of making disciples of all nations. Jesus has shown us that that in a post-fall world, in a creation stained by sin, there is no greater work we can attend to than making disciples. He shows us that the creation mandate culminates in the great commission to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Those were the last words that Jesus gave to his people, to his disciples, to the church. That is the main priority we are to dedicate our lives to. Yes, we must attend to our work, but we must always attend to our work with the eye of the greatest work of all, the work of making disciples. And that is hard. Life as we know it is hard because the ground is cursed. Our earth is, our, our world is broken. But when we, when we peer back across history, when we look beyond Genesis 3 to Genesis 2, we see that life was much simpler. We were called to be gardeners in God's garden. Not rulers over the garden, but, but stewards entrusted with what ultimately belongs to God, cultivating what he has entrusted to us with God's strength and in God's presence. Now, you may be wondering, hey, I thought, I thought this was a sermon about marriage. 
<laughs> not about the beginning of the world or about biblical anthropology. Well, what does any of this have to do with marriage? Well, the answer is everything. This has everything to do with marriage because until we understand why God made man, we will not understand why God made him a helper. And this leads to our second point, the helper. As Adam begins working in the garden, the Lord says in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now this helper, as many of you know, would be the first woman, the, the, the one Adam would later name Eve. She's called Adam's helper. But, but more than that, a helper who is fit for him. Now, before we get into what this means, we have to get into what it does not mean. Because if you're like me, this, this phrase perhaps carries a lot of baggage with it. Cultural baggage, emotional baggage, whatever. So we, we want to address what it does not mean first. Uh, back in, in 2011, uh, some of you may have watched the Oscar-nominated film, The Help. You remember that film? It's a, it's, a, it's a film about a white journalist documenting the lives of African-American maids. And uh, she's trying to understand how life was like for them. It's the 1960s. It's in the, the middle of the civil rights movement. She's trying to understand from a white woman's perspective what life was like for them. And so she's depicting their, their world. They are, they're attending to all the household chores. They're, they're caring for the children. They're cooking for the family. Uh, also that their white employers could live a more leisurely life. Well, if that's what you think of when you read this verse about the woman being a helper, whether because you were taught that or you were modeled that or you came to that interpretation by yourself, then I need to tell you that you are absolutely wrong. You are absolutely wrong. The helper is not the help. Your wife is not your maid. God, God didn't give Eve to Adam so that he could live a more leisurely life. He gave Eve to Adam so that together with her help, they could fulfill the creation mandate. God isn't giving Adam a helper so that he can make her do everything he doesn't want to do. God isn't even giving Adam, listen, God isn't even giving Adam a helper primarily because he was lonely. All right? We're going to get a little bit into that because that's certainly part of the equation. But that's not the primary reason that God gave Adam a helper. God is giving him a helper because the task that Adam has been given is too big for him to accomplish. It is too great for him to do alone. Adam needed a helper. One who would not only help him with his gardening, but help him fill the world with little gardeners so that God's creation could be cared for. It would be through the fruit of their work together and through their love for one another that they would fulfill the creation mandate. Now, some think that the role of helper is inherently inferior to the one who is being helped. That the helper is inferior to the one who is being helped. But, but that is not the case. There is nothing in the Bible that implies that. There's no biblical suggestion that 
the, the helper is inferior. And, and that is why God himself, listen, God himself is not embarrassed or ashamed to call himself our helper. In Psalm 30, verse 10, hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Psalm 54, verse 4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 118, verse 7, the Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And for those who know the gospels, what does Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? John chapter 14, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And when Jesus calls the Holy Spirit another helper, he's implying that he is the first helper. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all functioning as the helper of humanity. That is amazing. And that is a statement to us that that the helper role is not inferior. It is a statement about what one does and not about what who one is. What, what, what someone does is different from what they are worth. Eve may have been Adam's helper, but that did not make her any less valuable. She was made in God's image just as much as he was. She was made to be like God. She was made to represent God. And she was made to serve God as a faithful steward of creation. But notice Notice the rest of the phrase in verse 18. God doesn't just say, I will make him a helper. Okay, he says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Fit for him. The word fit here means opposite to and corresponding to. Opposite to and corresponding to. She is made like him, but distinct from him in a way that complements him. By compliment, I don't mean, you know, giving him praises. I mean, complimentary. Uh, making complete. Uh, she, she, she makes him complete as one who is like him, but distinct from him. She is meant to serve alongside him as his equal, but not as his identical twin, because she is the helper. Listen, she is the helper. He is not. Okay. We, we, we need to reckon with that insight into the text, and we need to understand what that means. And that's the question I want to try to answer now. What does it mean for her to be the helper but and him to not be the helper? It certainly doesn't mean that marriage is a one-way street where the woman is the one serving her husband, but the husband is not serving his wife. That, that is absolutely not what it means. Uh, because, because remember that this isn't talking about domestic responsibilities. This isn't talking about household chores. This is talking about the creation mandate. And so men, this, this verse, this, this wonderful gift that God has given to you of, of giving you a helper fit for you, that is not an excuse to not wash the dishes. That is not an excuse to not help your wife with the laundry. That is not an excuse to leave all the the household cleaning and cooking to your wife. She is not the help. Now, she may have primary responsibility for those areas of family life. Because if you're like me, it's a single income household. Uh, That's how we've decided to do it. That that my wife would tend to uh, the overall responsibilities in the home. And I would have responsibilities outside of the home. 
But th- this is not an excuse for us men when we're finished work to come home and lounge about and say, well, my helper's going to take care of everything. That, that, that is not what this verse implies. You know, the chances are that your wife at home worked at least as hard, if not harder than you when you were at work. And in fact, I can guarantee you that if she's taking care of young children at home, she worked five times harder than you. And so, so we, we can't come with the attitude of saying, hey, my, my wife's going to take care of all this and I can just come home and rest and be leisurely. My helper is the help. That, that is a gross twisting of the original purpose of God's vision for marriage. She may be your helper, but that does not mean that you don't have to help her. All right? I guess we put a copyright on that. It's pretty catchy. She may be your helper, but that doesn't mean that you don't have to help her. Jesus told us, listen, we we saw this a few weeks ago. Jesus told us that we are to wash one another's feet. And within that one another is your wife. And, and, And what could be more menial than washing someone's feet? We are called to attend to the most menial of tasks for the sake of our wives as we serve them. Just because you're helping her doesn't mean that you're making yourself her helper, okay? We need to make that distinction. We are called to serve our wives, even as they function as our God-given helper in God's beautiful vision of marriage. And so I I encourage you men, before we, we move on too quickly, That if you are not already engaged in helping in your home, serving your wife, I I encourage you to find ways to do that. In fact, I encourage you to do this. I encourage you to find one thing you can do every day. At least one thing. But start there if you don't already do it. Find one thing every day that your wife is currently doing that you can take off of her plate. Just one thing. Same thing every day. And then once a week, Find something else to do, something bigger, something a little larger in scope, something that makes her say, wow, are you really going to do that? Just, just serve your wife to communicate to her your love and the understanding that just because she's your helper doesn't mean that you don't have to help her. All right? I encourage you to do that. So if that's not what the phrase means, if it doesn't mean that she's meant to take care of all the things that we don't want to do, what, what does this phrase mean? What does it mean that Eve was made as a helper fit for him and not the other way around? Well, the Apostle Paul actually uh, gives us some much needed clarity in this area in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says this, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Okay, that's, that's the principle here uh, that, that Genesis chapter 2 is talking about. Helper fit for him, not helper fit for her. Man was created, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And then the immediately um, following verse, verse 10, it says this. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Now, I mean, we're going to get into some, some interesting territory here because Paul's talking about head coverings. And obviously our church doesn't believe that that, that symbol of authority remains today. We have other symbols. We have, we have wedding rings. 
Um, but, but what's important about this is, is what the head coverings symbolize. That they symbolize authority. They, they symbolize the husband's authority over his wife in the marriage context. An authority that the wife does not have over her husband. He is her head and she is his helper. Head and helper. That is the paradigm for marriage in the New Testament. And that has always been the paradigm for marriage uh, beginning in Genesis chapter 2. But, but we need to be clear here, and I need to emphasize this because we are so prone to twist this and to get it wrong. Authority does not mean superiority. Authority does not mean superiority. Just because he's the head doesn't mean that he's more important. They are equal in value, equal in worth, equal in contribution even to the cultural mandate, to the fulfillment of God's original command. They are equal allies with distinct roles in the mission to care for God's garden, head and helper, living and working together in love as they fulfill the creation mandate. Now that leads to the final section of our text today, the wedding. The Lord prepares Adam for the wonderful, generous, undeserved gift of his wife by taking him first through a little exercise. Verse 19 says, he took every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now, this was an event that was more significant than we might first realize. You know, God isn't setting up a petting zoo for his son. Okay, he, he is taking him through this exercise to give Adam the opportunity to, to use his authority over creation by naming the living creatures. You could only name something if you had authority over it. God had given Adam his name, and now he is giving Adam the opportunity to name the creatures as God's representative here on earth. Well, there's another reason why God took Adam through this exercise it was to help him realize that none of the creatures, none of the creatures that lived in the world at that time could be a helper fit for him. They were not like him, not dogs, not lions, not even gorillas. None of them had the capacities or the abilities to help him with the creation mandate. So none of them could be called Adam. None of them would have a name like his, they had their own names because they had their own character, their own qualities, but none of them were like him. I mean, they could have helped him in other ways. You can imagine elephants carrying the onyx stone on their back so that he could build a beautiful rock garden. Or you could, you could imagine dogs providing him with some companionship. They could help him, but none of them could be the helper. None of them could be the helper who was fit for him. And so with that, with that in mind, with that disappointment that Adam must have experienced and felt as one after another, a creature was brought to him and none of them could help him with what he needed to do. God finally brings his son, his bride. Verses 21 to 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
My friends, this, this was an utterly unique moment in creation. God didn't speak her into existence like the rest of creation. God didn't form her out of the dust like the man. Instead, God fashioned her out of the one she was made for. And that is the intimacy between a husband and his wife. It is without parallel in all of creation. And it has profound implications on how a husband is to treat his wife. You may know, Paul says a lot about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to get there eventually in this series. But in verse 28, he says, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies because Genesis 2 teaches us that in a very real way, she is. She is out of his own body. She is part of his own body. Marriage isn't just a union of two people becoming one. It is a reunion of two people who came out of one. Listen to how uh, Herman Baving puts it. He says, God made two out of one so that he could then make the two into one, one soul and one flesh. How would the man respond to this gracious gift from his father? Well, he responds with awe and wonder. In the first human words ever recorded in the history of the world, Adam is recorded as writing a love poem for his bride. He writes it in verse 23. This at last This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You need to hear the relief in his voice as he cries out, at last, at last, after seeing all the different creatures and, and weighing their properties and their character and their nature, at last, after being disappointed by creature after creature, at last, here is one who is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Here is one who is a helper who is fit for me. There was no question that she was the right one for him because she was taken out of him. They were meant to be together. She was, she was always the exact counterpoint, counterpart, sorry, that he had been waiting so long to receive. And so, Adam once again exercises his authority. He exercises authority as the head over his helper. And he chooses to name her woman, Isha, because she was taken out of the man, Ish. It's a different name, but it comes out of the name for Man. Now, our text today ends with these famous words about marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You want to boil down the application of the text? This is it. The text is saying what you see here in Genesis 2 is what we should be seeing today. This, this one flesh union between Adam and Eve was not a unique moment in history. It, was, it set the pattern, the model for every marriage to follow my marriage, your marriage, every marriage to come is meant to follow this pattern of head and helper, two people coming together as one flesh to garden in God's garden and to fill the earth with little gardeners who would do the same. They were to work together 
in love for God and love for one another so that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God. But that is not what we see, is it? No marriage meets this lofty vision because between Genesis 2 and the rest of human history lies Genesis 3, the fall and the entry of sin into our world. You know, Adam and Eve, they had, they had verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed because they were innocent. And they were innocent because they had never sinned, not against one another and not against God. But we cannot say the same. They were not ashamed, but we are. We are very ashamed because of the ways that we have rejected God, the ways that we have lived for our glory instead of his glory, the way that we have made ourselves the ultimate moral authority and rejected him as the Lord of our lives. We aren't cultivating creation as much as we are tearing it apart as we refuse to bend the knee to the one who created us. And for that, we deserve God's judgment. Every single one of us deserves God's just and eternal punishment because we have not tended to his garden. Instead, as one, as one writer puts it, we have become vandals in God's garden. We have ruined what he has made to be beautiful and to reflect his character. Listen, we, we live in a time right now, especially in the last couple of weeks, when we may be more tempted to focus on the sins of other people. Whether you are thinking about the sins of, of the police or the protesters in all the racial violence and all that, that stuff that's going on in the U.S. and to some extent in Canada, we are tempted to focus on the sins of others. My friends, whenever we look at the sins of others, we must remember that we carry the same nature. We, we may not be doing the same things, but the same sins that we see in them exists in us. It may only be in seed form, but it is there. And, it, and if, if left unaddressed by the light of Christ, it will grow in the darkness of our ignorance and rebellion. We are sinners. We are part of fallen humanity. And for that, we deserve God's judgment. But in Christ, God has extended to us his mercy. God the Father sent God the Son into the world to die on the cross for our sins. So that all who turn to him in repentance and in faith could be forgiven and restored to their creator. Jesus has come as the second Adam. He has come as the one who did what Adam could not. And he came to redeem a bride for himself who would dwell with him forever. That is how great the love of Jesus is for those who belong to him. The, the love between a husband and a wife is but a whisper of the true depths and beauty and length and height and width and depth of the love that Jesus feels for us because as close as we may get to another human being. We can never become as close to them as we can become with Jesus. A, a husband and wife may join together physically, but Jesus and his bride join together spiritually 
in a union that is more intimate than we can ever imagine. You know, Genesis 2 tells us that it was the breath of God that created man. John 3 tells us that it was the breath of God that recreates us. We were born by God's breath and we are reborn by God's breath. So so when Jesus in John chapter 20 breathes over his disciples, he says, receive the Holy Spirit, the very spirit of Christ himself to dwell with us and in us forever. There, There is an intimacy in the gospel that is infinitely deeper than anything that could be possible on a human level, including marriage. And so if you've, if you've never known Christ in this way, then, then hear him calling you to himself. Hear him inviting you into this intimate, satisfying relationship. Turn, turn away from your sins and turn towards the Savior that he might dwell in you forever. The more you know his love, the more you will love others around you including your spouse. True love is found in the one who is love and who most fully displayed his love on the cross. And so look look to the cross. Look, Look to the cross of Christ where the love of God was displayed for sinners so that we could be with him forever. There there is so much good news here in Genesis chapter two. Good news for sinners. And believe it or not, There is good news here for singles. Now you might be thinking, well, what could a sermon on marriage say to me? I mean, I don't fall in this category. This has been a disappointing experience for me. It's just aggravating all the longs that I have in my heart for marriage that I don't yet have. Well, if you're single today and you want to be married, the good news for you is that you do not have to be married in order to be satisfied in God. God didn't bring Adam and Eve, listen, God didn't bring Adam and Eve together to solve the fundamental problem of loneliness. You understand that? What Adam was lacking was not a companion, fundamentally. He was lacking a helper. You know, God didn't bring him a companion who would sit with him and hold his hand. He brought him a helper who would serve alongside him in fulfilling the creation mandate. In his book, Married for God, Christopher Ash says this, we were not made to gaze forever into the eyes of another human being and find in him or her all we need. And if we think we were, then we are bound to be disappointed. You know, marriage is a wonderful gift, but it is not the greatest gift. The greatest gift is Christ himself who dwells in his people, in his bride, by his spirit. And in that union, and in that union alone, we will find our ultimate satisfaction. Let's not forget that the greatest man who ever lived and the one who displayed the greatest joy, Jesus himself, never married. And he was never lacking in satisfaction or joy or companionship. He found his fellowship with God and he found fellowship with his disciples. Now, it may be the case that God has a spouse plan for you in the future, but you do not have to wait until then to stop feeling lonely. You can find true companionship now with God and with your brothers and sisters 
in Christ. Lastly, if you are married today, and I see many of you sitting with your spouse, husbands with wives, young and old, our text reminds us today to take some time and to give thanks to God for this incredible gift sitting beside you. I mean, there is so much more that we could say about what it means to be a helper and head, and we're going to unpack that over the next few weeks. But for now, I just want to leave you with this. That person sitting beside you is God's gift directly from his heart into your life so that you don't have to work alone. You don't have to work alone. You have a helper. Men, listen, you have a helper fit for you one who compliments you like a puzzle piece, one who will be your companion and your co-laborer as you do what God has called you to do. What a, what a wonderful, generous, amazing gift. Let's not forget that. Can we recapture some of the awe that Adam felt when God brought Eve to him the first time? Can we recapture some of the awe that we, ha- we felt when our bride walked down the aisle? Now, that wasn't just the beginning of the wedding ceremony. That was God himself bringing you the greatest gift, apart from Christ, that you will ever experience in this lifetime. Friends, let us, let us celebrate the wonder of marriage today and in the days to come. And let us look forward. Let us look forward forward to the final marriage between Christ and his bride, the church, the the reality that all marriage points to as we wait for our gracious and loving Savior to bring us to himself forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for what it reveals about a time when none of us lived, a time unstained by sin. And we are just so amazed by the beauty of your creation and by the beauty of marriage. We pray that some of that goodness would seep into our lives and increasingly fill the way that we relate to one another as husbands and wives, that we would, in a sense, return to Eden through your redemptive work in Christ. Give grace to our marriages. Give grace to those who are single, who are still waiting to be married. Help us all to find our satisfaction, not in any human relationship, but in the one who made us. Thank you for pouring out your love into our hearts. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.